Oh, I love, uh, I love that song, I do. And uh, it was uh, my pastoral joy to hear you singing it. I, I didn't actually sing that song at all. I was just listening because uh, it is uh, uh, the lifeblood of our church is that people would receive that message and that they'd come home uh, and they would receive the, the grace and the joy and the hope and the peace that they maybe think is too far off, but it's not. So let's pray and we're gonna get into this new series, all right? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. And because of that grace, uh, the truth that comes with it, that uh, we are not too far. Uh, forgiveness is, is found in you. Uh, joy, hope, and peace is found in you. And we're grateful. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, we're starting a new series today. Uh, those of you that have been around uh, the last few years know that we're kind of slowly working our way through Genesis uh, from January until Easter each year. Uh, the first year we kind of did origin story, Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, and then last year we did a Genesis story, or origin story, excuse me, faith. And we looked at the life of Abraham. And today uh, we are going to pick it up uh, with uh, the life of Jacob. Um, Abraham, you'll see it in the text, but uh, Abraham had a son named Isaac, and then Isaac is going to have these two sons, and uh, Jacob becomes the one through which the promise of, of the Messiah eventually comes. And uh, we've titled, for reasons that I think will be abundantly clear by the end of the message, we've titled the series Antihero. And it occurred to me as I was preparing that some of you might not be super familiar uh, with that terminology. Uh, if you're uh, not in the throes of uh, superhero movies like my family is with the age uh, of our son in particular. But I found this kind of little kind of one question quiz of which of the following statements is the best anti-hero definition? A, a character who works in opposition to the protagonist. B, a main character who displays a, a lack of typically heroic qualities. And C, a villain who always acts in antisocial ways. Anyone know the answer? B, right? All right it's, it's B. It, it's somebody that is uh, the protagonist. In other words, the story is about them, but they don't display typically heroic qualities. And there's a couple different examples of this. First of all, there's the, uh, the, the pragmatic rebel. Uh, this is sometimes displayed by Batman. All right, where Batman is the protagonist, he is what the story is about, and he does a lot of good, but whatever uh, action he deems necessary is what he takes. And if you've, I've watched this movie a hundred times, but if you've ever uh, seen Lego Batman, they do a really good job of portraying this in Lego Batman, where there's a scene in there where uh, this woman's kind of like, I think you're a hero, but you act in really non-heroic ways right? You, you hurt people, you reject people, you do all of this stuff. And this is the pragmatic rebel. There's the unscrupulous hero. This would be uh, like Deadpool and Loki. This is an anti-hero whose, uh, his morals fall into a gray zone, right? They have good intentions, but they're more driven by self-interest than they are the common good. And you kind of learn in their backstory uh, of why they're kind of a, a little bit of a protagonist, why they, they seek good, but really they just have a hard time finding uh, the right thing to do. And then there, there's the hero by any means necessary. And I would never in a million years recommend this to you, but this is best displayed by a character named Dexter. Um, and, and this is the person who uh, borders, almost borders on being a villain, that they justify their behavior because it results, in it results in something good and benefits society, but nobody would ever call them a traditional hero. And I'll, I'll tell you the basis for the, the series that, that we're in, the title for the series, is I was at a retreat, and I knew, uh, a preacher's retreat, and I knew that we were going to be studying Jacob together. 
And uh, we were in our common group and I said, I don't really know like the take for the title of the series. I don't really know what direction to go with the title. And one of my friends just made an offhanded comment and he said, I think Jacob has got to be one of the most unlikable characters in all the Bible. I said, that's true. That's true. He's greedy. He's opportunistic. He's self-serving. He hurts the people closest to him. And I was telling the Sunday school class this morning that there is going to be a section of you by personality. They're like, oh, whoa, whoa, Jacob. Like, like don't, you can't criticize Jacob. It's, it's not fair. But Jacob is written to be unlikable. All right. The, the, the point of it is that he's unlikable. All right. And so the, for the first quarter of, of last year, we studied Abraham and I would never want to portray Abraham as perfect. Abraham was far from perfect on multiple occasions. He said his wife was his sister uh, to get out of negative consequences. Uh, but here's the, here's what is true about Abraham. Abraham is written and the story unfolds to exhibit noble and protagonistic qualities, right? Jake, uh, Abraham, by nature, is meant to kind of reveal the goodness of humanity. He, he portrays good. So when God calls him in Genesis 12, he says, leave your country, your people, and your father's household. Abraham demonstrates faith, and he starts walking. He doesn't do it perfectly. He brings a lot along, but he demonstrates faith. He demonstrates a protagonistic quality, a good quality. He walks and exhibits obedience. When he falls into conflict with his nephew Lot, and he says, listen, Lot, here's what we're going to do. You kind of take a, a, a scenic tour of the land and wherever you want to settle in, I'll settle in the opposite direction. And in this conflict with Lot, he exhibits peacemaking and generosity. When God tests Abraham and says, man, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, whom you love on an altar, Abraham demonstrates this deep faith and this trust in God. And we're told in scripture that Abraham summarized that God could raise Isaac from the dead if he, if he went through with it. And so Abraham, almost from the beginning, he exhibits these noble qualities. Again, he's not perfect, but he exhibits noble qualities. You're not going to see that in Jacob, all right? Um, he exhibits fewer noble qualities, right? He, he, just, he just does. So let's just put the story into context and then we'll read the, the opening story. The first thing we learn about Jacob, right? The first thing we learn about Abraham is that he left everything to be obedient to God. This is gonna be the first thing we learn about Jacob. It's gonna be different, all right? Um, and, and so let me have a minute. God has promised Abraham that through his family tree, he would build a nation and uh, they have Isaac, a son, and now we're going to read about Isaac's children. And this is, we're in, entering into the nation building period. And here it is in Genesis chapter 25, uh, starting in verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, uh, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, uh, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? Some of you have been through pregnancy and you've asked this question. Why is this happening to me, right? And so she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. Lovely description of your son, right? 
So they named him Esau. And then, and after this, uh, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's seal, uh, heel. So they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, and Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, give me some of the red stew. I'm famished. This is why he's also called Edom. We'll cover that in a minute. Jacob replied, first, some of your birthright. Look, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. And so he swore on an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. Gave up his birthright for lentil stew, right? He ate and drank and got up and left. So Jacob uh, despised his birthright. So Isaac has these two sons. And from the get-go, there is a prophecy from God that there'll be conflict in this family. And listen, I'm not sure that we needed a prophecy to see the handwriting on the wall and to know that there was going to be conflict in, in this family. We sometimes talk about in church that there are no perfect churches because there are no perfect people. Listen, there are no perfect families. This is one of the lessons of Genesis. No perfect families because perfect families have imperfect people. And we're coming in a season right now, coming off a season, where a lot of you have seen a lot of social media posting about family gatherings, and you're tempted to see everybody in their matching pajamas, and the perfect Christmas tree, and the abundance of gifts, and the meal spread out as far as the eye can see, and you might be tempted to look at them and say, that is a perfect family. I assure you, they're not. They're photogenic, which is different, They're photogenic, but they're not perfect. You see the smiles, but you didn't see the screaming that took place five minutes before to get everyone in that perfect spot. You see the perfectly displayed tree, but you didn't see the meltdown from the five-year-old who didn't get what they hoped for. You saw the meal spread out, but you didn't see Cousin Eddie's drunken political rant right before that picture was taken. They're not perfect. No family is, because families are made up of people. As a matter of fact, later uh, this year, uh, toward the summer, we're going to do a series called Grace-Centered Families. And what we're going to learn in that series is that perfection shouldn't even be our aim or our goal. There are no perfect families. Grace should be our aim and our goal, because every family is imperfect, so every family needs grace. And so we want to have a grace-centered family and allow grace to permeate our families and make a huge difference. Now, every family has issues to be sure, but hopefully at this point in the story, you're feeling better about yours. You know, you're going, you know, Christmas wasn't that bad. No one stole anything, right? No one lied to anybody. No one did, you know, Christmas isn't looking so bad. This story is uniquely dysfunctional. And honestly, it it was kind of inevitable, all right? Because first of all, this is a story about showing favoritism. You see it in the story, Isaac favors Esau and Rebecca favors Jacob. And this favoritism in this family leads to scheming and trickery and dishonesty. and, And it's a lesson, Guard against showing favoritism toward one family member over another. And as a matter of fact, I think grace helps us to avoid favoritism. 
because grace causes us to forgive sins and grace causes us to love every member of the family uh, in in a unique way. Grace grace helps us avoid it. And, And it's true that sometimes because of common interests, like in this story, sometimes personalities, birth order, all kinds of things, a relationship in your family might be easier with one person over another person, but grace and love helps us lean into any tension that there might be in our family and overcome those tendencies. Grace helps us appreciate every member of our family. Now, what's interesting in this particular family is that Jacob experiences this favoritism. He sees the impact of this favoritism on his family. And next year, during the same time, we're going to be studying the life of Joseph, uh, Jacob's son. And one of the reasons what happened to Joseph happened, that he's nearly killed by his brothers, he's sold into slavery, all this stuff all this terrible stuff happens. And the reason it happens is because Jacob clearly favored Joseph over the other sons. It's like, you gotta be kidding me, Jacob. After what happens to you early in your life, you would think, I am never gonna do that to my family. But instead he's like, rinse and repeat. Let's just do it again. You you would think he'd avoid that like the plague, but instead he leans into it. And I think we want to ask God, God, would you help me? Would you open my eyes to the parts of my nuclear family that were good and should be repeated? And God, would you open my eyes to the parts of my nuclear family that I need to overcome? Because I guarantee you there are parts to both of that. So this is a story of favoritism. It's easy to see the conflict because of favoritism. This is a story where the traditional birth order is altered. At this time, in this part of the world during this century, the oldest child would receive the birthright and everything that came with that. And the birth order will be altered in this story and it leads to conflict. The oldest son was Esau. Just was, he came out first. And so the birthright and the legacy, and the inheritance, all of that stuff should have been his. I think the rest of scripture, uh, like Romans 9, that we'll look at later, the, the rest of scripture will say, God chose Jacob. Esau was first, but God chose Jacob. And I think the scripture is really clear on that, but that is not to say what Jacob does here is right. It's not. The mistakes made in this family were the, the links that Jacob and his mother will go to to try to help God's plan along. Because God had communicated to Rebecca, hey, I'm choosing Jacob. And she's like, well, instead of waiting for God's timing, God, I'm just going to help you along a little bit. And we're going to scheme and we're going to lie and we're going to do all of of this stuff. And I hope we've learned this lesson through the book of Genesis, right? Helping God along with his plan rarely goes well. And it's never the right thing to do. But this is a story where that traditional birth order gets altered and it leads to conflict. And finally, This is a story where siblings are very different from one another. A lot of families are this way. Maybe your family's this way. One is studious and the other's athletic. One is a planner and the other's more spontaneous. One is compliant and the other is rebellious. And if you live in a family where people are different from one another at all, you know how ripe this is for conflict and the stage is set in Jacob and Esau's family. Conflict is going to come. And listen, Esau is not to blame here. I don't know how hungry I'd have to be. Can you imagine how hungry you'd have to be to give up a lottery ticket? That man, yeah, I just won the lottery, but I really want some stew. Wouldn't you rather have the $2 million? No, I'm hungry, right? So so just think about what you'd have to go through to to give up your inheritance. He gives up his inheritance for stew, and I love me some stew, but lentil stew? Come on, Esau, you're better than this. 
You're giving up everything for lentil stew? And there's actually a wordplay uh, a little bit going on this. Um, he, he says to Jacob in, uh, in uh, Hebrew, it says, give me the red stuff. Give me the red stuff, the red meat. Give me, give me the red stuff, give, give it to me. Uh, and then later, Esau is the ancestor of a land called Edom. It's referenced in the text, which translates the red lands. So the red lands were founded by a man who gave up his birthright for the red stuff. And it's a dangerous thing to be so driven by our appetites, to be so driven by our desire and what we want that we are willing to not walk in wisdom. So Jacob, Esau is not without blame, but Esau, I mean Jacob, excuse me, he's most certainly to blame in this conflict. I've read some theories over the last couple months as I've been studying for this, uh, justifying Jacob's behavior because God had already told Rebecca that he had chosen Jacob. And so it justified the deceit. And you just need to know the text doesn't read that way. It doesn't. Over the next couple weeks, you will find Jacob to be a grabber. You will find him to be entitled. You will find his general personality to be wanting. And here's what's interesting about this to me. In our culture, when you read Jacob's story, in our culture, what Jacob does would have gotten him canceled. Without question, our culture would have been then, you lied and deceived your family, you stole an inheritance, you took advantage, you did all of this stuff, canceled. You're done, forever. But that's not what God does. Instead, God molds him. And God shapes him. And God helps develop his character. He puts Jacob in a position, in a couple weeks we'll see, where he is cheated and wronged, and he gets to see how it feels. He's put in a position where he's going to be able to reconcile and have a really tough conversation with his brother. He's put in a position where he's going to wrestle with God. And all these things are going to happen because God is committed to Jacob. Committed to shaping him and developing him into the man he wants him to be. And if you are a Jacob, this should be very encouraging to you. Now the second part of that truth is we're all a little bit Jacob. We're intended as the story unfolds. We are intended as we read Jacob's story. We are not intended to say, how dare he? We are intended to say, me too. We are intended to ask tough questions like, have I ever misled someone to get what I want? Have I ever lied to someone to get my way? Have I ever stolen from someone and just taken what I desire? And the second question we're to ask is this, how wonderful is it that God didn't cancel me. How wonderful is it that God didn't cancel you? He came for us Jacobs. He forgives our sin. He gives us the law. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And slowly but surely he transforms us and he makes us new. And it is a beautiful, beautiful thing for every Jacob in this room. And we're all Jacob. Here's how the Apostle Paul said it. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the worst. Paul, really? Yeah, Paul says, I'm the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience 
as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. If you are a Jacob, this should be enormously encouraging to you and to me. But it should also be motivating to you to say, man, if this is true, that God has not given up on me, that God is coming for me, and he's shaping me, and he's making me new, then as Jacobs, and we are all Jacobs, then what we want to do is we want to submit to his will in this area. We want to submit to his work that he's trying to do to change our life and our hearts and our minds. We want to ask questions like, what is he teaching me? During this pandemic, during this difficult season, what is God teaching me? How is he shaping me? What situations is he placing me in so that I can learn and grow in every way that he wants me to learn and grow? I want to submit to him, not resist him. Jacob resists God to the point where God says, I'm coming down there and we're going to wrestle and you're going to walk with a limp for the rest of your life. Right? That's how committed God is to Jacob. He keeps coming and coming and coming, and Jacob would be well served to submit to him and to his work. Now, for all of us Jacobs, and we're all Jacob, this should be very encouraging to us, that God keeps coming and coming and coming. But if you have a Jacob in your life that's not you, this might be frustrating to you. Because you have been watching this situation and you see God coming for them and shaping them and molding them and making them new. And if you're honest and we're in church, so we're going to be honest, you prefer that God would be more harsh in his discipline. You find that God hasn't given up on them yet to be, as a theology, annoying. And I get it. But at the end of the day, we want a patient God. And at the end of the day, we want a graceful and loving God. And the good news is that's who he is. So this isn't really a story about a dysfunctional family. That's the backdrop. This is a story of God's grace. There's another way in which we see that exhibited in the story, that this is a story of God's grace. And it's this idea in verse 23, the older will serve the younger. And you see this all throughout the book of Genesis. God kind of breaking free of the cultural norm where the oldest uh, was absolutely the inheritor and the one that would be in charge of the family after the patriarchs were, were gone, that the older would assume that role. And you see God regularly breaking free from that cultural norm and choosing the younger. All throughout the book of Genesis, the offering of Cain, the older brother, is rejected by God. The offering of the younger brother, Abel, is accepted. The line of Seth, you see the younger brother was the chosen line. Isaac is chosen over his older brother, Ishmael, and Rachel was chosen over her older sister, Leah. And Joseph, the younger brother, was chosen over the rest. And Judah was chosen over his older brothers. So the question becomes, does God favor younger children. And as the youngest in my family, I would like to say, yes, he does. 
But as a reader of the scriptures, as a study of the scriptures, I would have to say no. He doesn't just automatically favor younger children. He is breaking free from a a societal and cultural norm in order to teach us something very, very important. And the intention is that in each of these stories where he chooses the younger over the older and gives the birthright to the younger and not the older, where he chooses to go that direction, he is trying to affirm to us his sovereign plan of grace that the blessing in each of those cases was not a natural right as it would have been to the firstborn son. Rather, God's blessing is extended to those youngers who have no other claim to it. They have received what they did not deserve. And I'm not just talking about Jacob right now. I'm talking about all of us. Here's how Romans 9 says it. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Jacob was not loved or chosen or blessed because of anything he had done. He's actually not that lovely of a person. He was loved through the sovereign grace of God. He was actually chosen before he had done anything good or bad, just to highlight the point to you and to me, that he wasn't loved or chosen or blessed because of anything he had done, good or bad. He was chosen through the sovereign grace of God, and I You and I, we are the same way. I have fallen in love. It's never going to be like a superstar movie with like a Disney ride and all that, but I have fallen in love with the movie Encanto. Um, And it follows this family who each year, one of the children, when they come of age, they receive a magical gift uh, that is meant to serve the family. So one receives supernatural strength, another unbelievable beauty, another connection to animals, a supernatural hearing, and each person's gift is different, but it is meant to serve the family. And what happens to this family over time as each person after each person receives a gift is the family, especially the oldest uh, mom kind of of the family, the family becomes so fixated on your gift that they lose perspective on what it actually means to be a family. The idea that you are not loved in this family because of your gift, because of what you bring, because of your works. You are loved simply because you're in the family. They lose sight of that. And we learn the same thing through Jesus. In Jesus, what is true of Jacob in this story, who had no right and no inheritance to what he received. No obligation was given that he should have received that. It was all because of grace. What is true for Jacob is true for you. Body of Christ, you, I hope you get this, you are not loved by God because of what you bring to him. Because of your gifts and your ability and your work, you are loved because of what he brought for you. You are not loved because of what you give. You are loved because of what he gave. You are not loved because of your gifts. You are loved because of the gift that is Jesus and that is, that is grace. And it is for everyone. 
And it is true. We are all Jacob. We are not deserving, but God in his omnipotent, sovereign grace found a way for us to be loved and accepted into the family so that our sins could be forgiven and we could know God in this life and the next. It is all grace. I think sometimes we have brought into a lie that the reason God cares for me and loves me is it's because of my gift. It's what I bring. No, no, no. For God so loved the world, he gave. For God so loved the world, he gave. His one and only son from the tribe of Jacob, from the line of Jacob, by the way, he gave his one and only son that whoever, anyone who believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's grace and it's for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sovereign grace. And uh, I just want to pray right now as we get ready to enter into a time of communion that we would remember that grace and we would remember that we're all a little bit like Jacob. We're all a little bit that way and your sovereign grace allows us to be forgiven and you keep coming for us and changing us and making us new and that's a grace in and of itself. But today we want to worship you not based on our gift or what we bring or what we do, but right now we want to worship you because of who you are and the extraordinary links that you went to so that we could be in your family. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We're going to receive a communion together right now as a church family, and this is an opportunity for us to remember and celebrate grace. It's what he gave. It's what he did. It's his gifts that, that allow us to come into the family of God and be loved and accepted, and changed, and transformed. Both those things are true. And it's uh, his grace that makes that possible. So we're going to pass out communion here, and you can just kind of hold on to those and just thank God for his grace through his son, Jesus Christ. And then I'll come back up in just a minute, and we'll receive it all together as a church family. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. What I was saying earlier, I really meant about there is this temptation because his name is so prevalent in the Bible, to justify Jacob and to make him likable and to excuse his behavior. And I think it absolutely misses the point. One of the points of Jacob in this story is that you are to see him as the apostle Paul sees himself. You are to have the, the reaction, he's the worst. <laughs> he's the worst. And God's grace was for him. And God came for him and didn't give up on him and made him new and changed him. And it's beautiful. And it's true for him and it's true for you and it's true for me. But we, we miss it when we justify him and, and we receive it when we see him for who he really is. So this will, it's, might be a little uncomfortable, but we're not gonna excuse Jacob. We're gonna lean into it so that we can see the grace message which is the point of the whole story, that look who God used. Look who God loved. Look who God changed. He kept coming and coming and coming for Jacob, and that's a beautiful thing. He'll keep coming and coming for you as well. Lean into it, submit to it, receive it, and allow him to do it.
All right, God bless you guys. We're gonna see, we're gonna see Jacob take one more step further uh, next week in this story. Um, you know, he kind of deceives his brother and then he's gonna take an additional step next week and we're gonna see him deceive his father and trick his father on his deathbed. And I'm telling you, anybody in this current culture would read the story we're gonna look at next week and say, canceled. I don't ever wanna see this dude again, canceled. Yet God, yet God, let's worship his name. Let's stand this thing.